0: Everyone, the reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19 Daniel's Prayer. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. And done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, Turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people Bear your name.
1: Thank you, Michelle. Welcome all. Great to have you along today. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting. And uh, Youth Church, that is your cue to head out to your program. We are going to be camping out in the uh, section there, 9 to 12 of Daniel. Um, <clears throat> it is our last sermon in this series, this clash of kingdoms that we've been looking at all through the book of Daniel. It's a, a formidable task, this back end. But, um, so how about we pray as we as we kick it off? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we ask now that you would by your spirit uh, soften us to hear, to understand and to respond in line with your word, in line with the promises that you've made, hope-filled, trusting in Christ who is the yes and amen to everything that you've promised. Uh, help us to see that for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to know what you're like as uh, waiting. Who, in, who here actually enjoys waiting? Anyone here, any sickos amongst us who enjoy sitting in the... No? Kind of, sort of. Actually, I must say, I don't mind sitting in the doctor's office sometimes waiting. It's one of those dead, ta- dead times that you get to you know, play chess. No, to say no, no way. No, I don't mind it. But, but what do you like whether you're waiting in a queue at the shops or whether you're um, you know, waiting for the online purchase to come in the mail? Maybe you're waiting for test results. If you're young, that's probably exam results. If you're old, it's probably medical results. Or even if you're just waiting for your next birthday or ne- anyone excited by the, uh, the option of their next birthday or Christmas? Who's really excited? Yeah, Meg, you're excited about those things, yeah. Or maybe even an exciting like a milestone, say, a wedding. I've had a few of those recently. What do you like when you're waiting for the big thing? Who enjoys the wait? Or actually, a better way to ask it, do you recognize the stages that often we go through while we're waiting for things? You know, we start out excited. We start out expectant. We start out even optimistic, I think. Hopefully that thing that we're waiting for, will happen sooner than it's been it's suggested. You want to start there? Oh yeah, come on, I'm sure we'll get it sooner than that. And then that sort of gives way to a more reasonable, philosophical approach. Now it hasn't happened yet, but it's okay, it's still coming, it's still coming. Remaining upbeat, vibrant. And then how quickly do you turn from that to impatient, to a little bit crabby, maybe a little bit narky with the people around you? maybe even then growing distant and despondent, even to the point where you maybe start to stop caring about the thing that you've been anticipating. Anyone recognises themselves in those processes? We're in Daniel 9 to 12 today. We're in that last of our sermon series. And there's important lessons to learn here about how to wait well. Uh, just to give you a quick context, if you are new or visiting or if you, if you missed out last week, let me sort of tell you where we've come from more recently. We're in this section of Daniel, which is the apocalyptic section of Daniel. It's about visions and dreams. It's, it's uh, Daniel given these things as a pre as preempting what's the lead up to the end of the age. In fact, chapter 7, we saw the big unambiguous truth of God reigning supreme. In chapter 8, if you read it, we looked a little bit of it last week, but if you read it during the week, hopefully, you'll see that chapter 8 goes even more into the specifics of some of the kings and the kingdoms Daniel hears about, you might remember, the ram with the one big horn and the one little horn, representing the Medo-Persian Empire. And the ram gets smashed by a goat with a huge big horn. That's the kingdom of Greece. It's the Greek Empire. Smashes them and then suddenly the horns replace with four little horns. And you go, what the heck happened there? But the thing about it is when you read that, it actually quite nicely maps onto the history, onto history, if you look in the books. Amazingly, actually, The history of the world reflects what Daniel wrote hundreds of years beforehand. I think it's awesome. (laughs) It's actually one of the things that I'm certainly always thankful to God, the God who knows the future, who caused these things to be written so many hundred years in advance. Ought we be surprised that they actually play out this way? No. It's pretty amazing, though. Because it was the Greeks that smashed the Medo-Persian Empire. It was Alexander the Great, representative of the big horn. It was him that got knocked over suddenly, died early. His empire split ruled by four different provincial rulers, these four little horns. If you know the history, it's the Seleucids in the north, it's the the Ptolemies in the south. And out of those, there is a particular horror king that emerges. His name is Antiochus IV. Here's a picture of him or a a coin that represents his image. Antiochus IV, who crowned himself Antiochus Epiphanes. If you're not sure what Epiphanes means, it means God manifest. High opinion of himself. And you can read about him in the, in the history books. You can read about what a horror he was, the extent of his blasphemous rule and the, the, uh, with the atrocities that he perpetrated against Israel. And you can see this play out in Daniel 8. But what I want to say is that's not what we're going to focus on today. In fact, it's not what we're going to focus on as we look through the back end of Daniel. We're not going to try to wade through all the specific details and try to find some sort of one-to-one correspondence with what's imaged here and what happened in reality, though often it will work out really well and we're not going to focus our time there because ultimately that's not what Daniel was given the visions for. Instead, as we said last week, we're going to continue to focus on the big, unambiguous, enduring Transcultural, that is relevant to all cultures and times, we're going to focus on the truths that are at the center of these chapters. And a big part of the end of Daniel has got to do with how you wait. That's why I've titled the sermon that. While you wait, here's how to do it. Because what you'll notice is, as Daniel has given all these extra insight and these visions, like in Daniel 8, he's still struggling to make sense of it all. Do you remember that from last week? In fact, look at your Bibles now. Look at cha- chapter 8, and 27. This is how Daniel finished off that. That section of writing, he says this 827 I, Daniel, was exhausted and laid ill for several days. Then I got up and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision, it was beyond understanding. It's really interesting to note again, isn't it? That although Daniel was given this extra vision in chapter 8 that gave him all sorts of extra precision about what to expect, he's still shattered by the experience. He's still confused and appalled. In fact, it kind of reads like he took a week of sick leave, lay ill for several days, and then he went back to work just to meet the king's business. But is that all he did? Is that is that his response when confronted with these difficult truths from God about a difficult road ahead? Did Daniel just lay about for you know feeling sorry for himself, feeling him, sad for a couple of days, and then just put it out of his mind and get back to distracting himself at work? That's what it kind of reads like, doesn't it? You can probably understand if that's what uh, that's, thats what it was. In fact, is it not how you often personally, I personally respond when confronted by difficult truths, especially from God's word? Whether they be truths brought to me by a person rebuking me for something that they necessarily ought, or maybe when I realise a pattern of my life that really is out of kilter and I know it needs addressing, are you like me and just sort of mope around for a bit, maybe have a couple of nights difficult sleep? And then do your best to forget about it, to keep it at an arm's length, to convince yourself that it's really not important anyways. I mean, who else naturally finds himself defaulting there? I can resonate with that. I can certainly resonate with that. In fact, actually, there's a good example of that in our Jesus Seriously course last week. Some of you people are, are, are part of that at the moment. Fantastic stuff. We were talking in Jesus Seriously about the problem of sin last week. And we got talking then about the uh, you know, sexual ethics, Christian ethics, when it comes to God's good design for sex exclusively in a committed marriage between a man and a woman. And that's hard to hear at first. That's it's hard to hear. It's personally confronting. Especially, especially if you know that you don't meet those standards or you failed those standards in the past or you fully intend on failing them in the future. <laughs> that's actually hard to hear that God's got, a stand, actually God's got a purpose and a design for sex even? In fact, it's easy to hear that the first time and just feel annoyed or upset or offended. Maybe spend a couple of days grouchy about it and then just block it from your memory. Pretend it doesn't exist. Pretend it doesn't matter anyways. Maybe you've done that before when you've been confronted with a difficult truth. But I want you to notice it's not what Daniel does here. I want you to notice what he does when he's confronted with personal, difficult truths from God's word. What does he do? Notice he leans into God's word further. Did you notice that? He doesn't keep God at a distance. He doesn't pretend not to hear. Sorry, I can't quite understand this, God. No, no. He doesn't convince himself it's not important. He leans in further. Look at where we see this in the text. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It starts off in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, Who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, do you hear what's going on here? This is actually quite cool. This is quite amazing. What's Daniel been doing since he heard these difficult truths about a hard, bumpy road ahead? He's leaning in, he's reading more scripture. He's tuning his ear to, not away from God's word. He's got access to the scroll of Jeremiah. Actually, that's not too difficult to imagine. They're sort of contemporaries, if you will. Both Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel are sort of operating. They're living in Jerusalem in around about the time of the exile. They sort of go their different directions. I'm not saying they're flatmates. They're probably known to each other. And more significant than that, it's not that Daniel just knows about Jeremiah, but he's reading his writings and he's referring to them as scripture from the get-go. He's reading this as the inspired word of God through the pen of a prophet. That's profound. See, Daniel's reflex here in times when they're difficult and confronting, it's the right reflex because in difficult circumstances, confronted by difficult truths, turning into God's Word not way is the right response. Do you see that from the text? And of course, it begs an application question. You know what's coming, folks, don't you? How's your pattern of leaning in? How's your pattern of leaning on God's Word, especially in difficult times? Are you feeding on God's word daily, to delight in Him? And just so you know that I'm not asking that question as though I'm sort of pulling my glasses down, looking down the end of my nose, judgingly. No, I'll answer the question first because mine's been pretty ordinary of late. (laughs) When I reflected on this question as I'm writing it, it's it's, it's first I'm preaching to myself and I realise that my Bible reading of late has become much more functional than relational. I read the Bible a lot, don't get me wrong, but mostly it's for a purpose. It's actually to help me prepare a task or a talk. It's not bad short of the delight in, the joyful delighting, in the fact that God has spoken though. It's short of that heart-filled desire to know God better through his word for his own sake that I ought be aiming for. So genuinely I'm asking that question as someone who recognizes himself south of the equator. How's your daily habit of leaning on, leaning into God's word? Is it purposeful or is it robotic? Is it meaningful or is it means to an end? Is it for the sake of ticking off the box at the beginning of the day so at least there's something less to feel guilty about at the end? And actually a more important question, what are you going to do to address this? (laughs) Because when you recognise like me, okay, there's something wrong here, then there often is, what am I going to do to address this? I don't want to mope about that for a couple of days, turn and toss in my bed and then just pretend it's not important again. What am I going to do to address that? Write that question down and answer it, please. Start reading the I mean, there's a thousand options. Start reading the Bible with someone. Start reading with, with, a, with a group. Have a, a, an encouragement and accountability partner. Or download a reading plan. Or start a journal. Or blog on the, whatever that is, blog on the internet. Sounds rude. I always think feel dirty when I say blog somewhere. Anyways. But just don't keep your Bible closed Sunday to Sunday. That's what I'm getting at. Just don't keep it at arm's length. That's the first and the big point I want you to see from this passage. In fact, people often say to me then, but I just don't know where to start. I understand that perfectly well. That's quite reasonable. The truth is, anywhere is better than nowhere to start. There's the first point. But if you want some more specifics, then start with a gospel, for example. If this is something you actually are working out for uh, the first time or for a fresh time, or you haven't been in it for a long time, go back to the gospels. Read the account of Mark. Compare it with Luke's account. Compare it with Matthew's. Compare it with John's. There's an option. Or just pick one of the authors. Read the accounts that John wrote. Read John's Gospel. Read one, two, three John letters that he wrote. Read Revelations. Revelation. Or read Luke. Read Luke and Acts. Chunk out themes and authors. Read those. Or if you like historical narrative, go back and read the historical narrative of the Old Testament. It's nothing if not readable. It's fantastic. Or read one of the major... What I'm getting at, the options are really endless... If you're not sure, talk to someone who you know is in a good pattern. Ask them what they do. The first point is lean on and lean into God's word often. And the reason that that is so critical, the reason that it is such an important thing to do, in fact, it's the second point on your outline if you pick one up, it's because leaning on God's word is the how you actually learn to pray. Again, look at me where we get this from the text. Look at verse 3. Chapter 9, verse 3, Daniel says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now, do you hear what's happening here? Do you hear how this is working? After reading Jeremiah, after Daniel's read and understood, hang on, there's a prophecy in Jeremiah about Jerusalem. And after leaning into God's word, then Daniel turns immediately to pray from what he's read. That's actually pretty profound. In fact, more than that, he, it's through reading God's word that Daniel understands not just what to pray, but how to pray. Now, that will sound funny to a lot of us. I understand this. The idea of how do you pray, learning how to pray. For lots of us here, lots of you folk, you've grown up in Christian homes and you've probably seen and heard prayer done from knee Nehide or Grasshopper. So much so that you've never actually thought about how do I pray. You just sort of do it. But if you're here and you're new to church or if you're just working out what it means to be a Christian, the question of how to pray is actually a really live one. It's actually a really good question. There's a thousand different things that you might be thinking about that. It's totally reasonable. And so what I want to do is actually just take a look, a little closer look at Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. And what I want us to notice is not the mechanics of the way he prays. What I mean by that is the emphasis is not on what he looks like when he prays. You won't find a list of instructions that, you know, all right, uh, turn around three times, face north, north, east, kneel down, close your eyes, fold. It's not like that. It's much more about the nature or the manner, the demeanour of his prayer and then the content of his prayer that I want us to notice. So look first. Look at the manner and the demeanour. Look at how Daniel approaches God in prayer. Look at the end of verse 3 again. It says there, pleading in prayer, pleading in prayer in petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. Now I want you to hear me very very clearly this is descriptive of what Daniel prays like not prescriptive for how you ought pray I mean don't necessarily need to go home and fast before you pray that's not necessary you don't have to dress in hessian not many of us look good in a hessian sack and the rare exception you don't have to sprinkle ash on your head in order for God to hear your prayers but these descriptions of Daniel's demeanor tell us something very important about his attitude to prayer. In fact, it's a picture. Can you imagine what he's looking like as he's praying to God? It's a picture of extreme humility before God. That's how Daniel approaches it. It's a picture of extraordinary longing for God. And in fact, it's even an acknowledgement of his need for God, even more than food. That's what causes him to fast. Fast. It's an expression of a deep sadness, even a mourning over the fact of his sin and the fact that he doesn't understand God better at this stage of his life. That's what prompts him to wear sackcloth and ashes. In other words, these actions reflect his genuine feelings about his situation before God based on having read God's word. It's not a religious routine. It's not a tradition to pump himself up or make himself look flash in the eyes of peers. No, it's a heartfelt response to God. It's not the only way to express humble position before God. It's not the only way to express a keenness and a knowledge of your dependence on God. But how do you express that? What's the cultural equivalent, if you will? What's the personal equivalent for you? In fact, let me ask you, what is your demeanour before God like in prayer? What does your practice of prayer reflect about your attitude towards God? Does your attitude of prayer, does your practice reflect a casual nature towards God? Or is it considered? Do you approach him in an, in an entitled way? Or are you genuinely humbled, knowing that there is nothing that you can demand from him? Are your prayers, are they, are they robotic or relational? Are they reactive, like only in the time of crisis, in in case of emergency, break the glass? You know that one? Or are they proactive? That is, are they regular, both in the response to situations and in anticipation of them? Or actually, if you're honest, do you pray at all? It's a question worth asking, isn't it, folks? What does your practice of prayer reflect about your attitude towards God? It's a question I want you to ask an answer. It's an answer for you before God the attitude really significantly matters. But there's another question that we ought to ask and answer about prayer based on this reading of Daniel. In fact, it's not just your demeanor or attitude to prayer, but the content of your prayer that we ought to look at. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I think it might have even been last week, all the weeks are blurring into one at the minute, I can't remember what happens. Simon Spargo, was he leading last week? I don't know, let's, let's pretend he was. He, he led us in prayer as a church, and he mentioned that uh, model of prayer acts, A-C-T-S, as a model of deliberate, considered prayer. Rich prayer towards God. If you don't know it, it goes like this. It's, it's A stands for adoration, starting off by saying and expressing to God why you adore Him, why He's worthy of prayer and praise. C is confession. It's that acknowledgement of the reality that your response, my response, is always less than it ought to be by definition. The T is thanksgiving. It's about thanking God for His continued goodness to us despite our shortcomings. Moving to S, supplication, really just request, another word for request, presenting requests before God, an acknowledgement of my dependence on him and with the best of the wisdom he's given me. This is what it seems to me would be wise to ask that he would do. Committing it to his better wisdom and understanding. It's a good model of prayer. I use it with my kids, I use it myself, it's excellent. It's not a program... It's not the most high, holy, surefire, five ways to guarantee your prayers are answered today. No, it's none of that garbage. <laughs> it's just a helpful way of keeping your thoughts tuned Godward while you pray. And why I pick it up and why I mentioned it again is because did you notice the, the, the content of Daniel's prayer? It kind of reflects this approach quite well. Did you actually notice that? It's actually, Daniel deliberately starts with adoration of God. In fact, look at verse four. Have a look, how does he start his prayer? Oh Lord, The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Straight away, Daniel starts by expressing why it is that he's praying to God. He prays because he recognizes the awesome greatness and faithfulness of God. And what I like about it is he doesn't go over the top with flowery language. I mean, you could. You could fill a warehouse with superlatives to say about God. He doesn't do that, he's genuine and he's real, he's not flowery or showy. He expresses exactly what he says, God you are faithful, you are awesome and that's why I'm praying, it's good. And where does he go next? You see he goes straight to confession, verse 5, we'll read a little bit of verse 5 because to be honest Daniel spends quite a good bit of time here. Have a look at verse 5 though, he says, we have sinned and done wrong, we have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. And he will go on and acknowledge acknowledge the shame and the guilt before God of all of Israel. Notice verse 6, from kings to commoners. Very much including himself in the mix. Now did you notice that? Did you notice the way that he does it? He says we, not they, we have rebelled. We have not obeyed. It's our unrighteousness. It's I mean I point this out because I think it'd be easy having read Daniel a few times to think it'd be right for Daniel to go man these people God they are just horrible <laughs> you can imagine him doing that couldn't you you read Daniel and you think this is a stand-up fair income kind of guy yet for all his rightness or his goodness he can't help but acknowledge his guilt before God that is true folks No matter how good we might be in the eyes of others, no matter how generous or kind or genuinely other person focused you might be at times, even if that's often, the cold hard truth of it is that we're not good enough to stand before God. You realise that, don't you? There is no one who could stand before God of the universe trusting in their own inherent goodness and expect to hear, oh wow, that's impressive, well done. No one barring the Son of Man that we heard about last week, Daniel 7. He's the only character who can be ushered into God's presence and stand. Instead, recognize, friends, that confession and repentance. And what I mean by repentance, it's that expression of a desire to change your actions. That's a right and necessary part of Christian prayer. And so my question is, do you actually use that? Do you pray that way before God? Do you acknowledge and confess areas where you know you're at odds with his will for your life? You should. To not is actually to be missing out on something that's profound and, and, and significant about prayer. I mean, I put it this way. It's not like God's unaware. It's not like if you let fear and shame stop you, it's not as if you're, it's not as if you're keeping it from him. And God's not looking for you to make things up. He's, it's, <laughs> it's funny, there's another one from uh, last week at Jesus' Seriously. It's not like a trip to the Catholic confessional. Some people from Jesus' Seriously were talking about last week, relating their experiences of going to a, the, the confessional box and for the priest to keep on expecting you to add, yes, anything else? Anything else? What else? And whether true or false, a couple of these people are saying, you just had to keep coming up with new things until you've jumped through the hoop, so to speak. That's not what it's like before the God of the universe. Because the God of the universe, whom knows your innermost thoughts, nothing is hidden from him, is calling you to be raw and real. It's not for the sake of bashing you up either, but for the sake that you might seek mercy and forgiveness and help from the only one who can. That is the point and the power of prayerful confession, folks. It's seeking help and forgiveness. It's seeking the restoration and the healing that can come from the only one who can heal and restore, and it's God alone. Does your prayer life reflect that sort of necessary awareness of your dependence, friends? It ought, it must, it should. And it does for Daniel. In fact, he's super aware of his own and his people's shortcomings. And the reason he can... The reason he can be so honest and raw about it is because he also is able to acknowledge that God is merciful and forgiving. Did you notice that in verse 9? Flick your eyes there. Verse 9. God, he notices and he recognizes that God is merciful and forgiving even though we've rebelled against him. In fact, it's because, it's why he can pray and ask God to act in verses 16 and 17 as well. In fact, listen again to the way Daniel finishes off his prayer. It actually finishes with a request. But even in doing this, even in requesting, he's still holding God's glory as a chief end of which he's asking him to act in. Have a look at Daniel 9. Have a look at 17 and 18. This is how he finishes off. He says, Now our God, hear the prayers and petition of your servant. For your sake, O Lord. For your sake, O Lord. Look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy oh lord listen oh lord forgive oh lord hear and act for your sake oh my god do not delay because your city and your people bear your name it's a phenomenal way to finish out a prayer isn't it and what's remarkable about this is i find that daniel now prays his requests are in light of god's word They are in line with the promises that God has made and they are leading towards God's glory first and foremost. It's remarkable. It's remarkable to think Daniel specifically has been reading Jeremiah, realised God's plan for a return from exile to 70 years and in line with that he prays. He adores, he confesses, he thanks and he requests. For God's ultimate glory. That's his aim, folks. It's amazing. And friends, this ought be our practice also, I say. This is something that we really ought to learn and and embrace from reading Daniel. And actually the better news that we've got than Daniel is we've got more of God's word to draw on. Do you realize that? That's a real privilege. We've got all the Old Testament. We've got the law and the writings and the prophets. And better than that, we've got the final fulfillment of all God's promises in Jesus, filled out by the New Testament writers, the eyewitnesses and contemporaries of Christ, who give us even more reason for the hope that we can have as Christians. Have even more clarity about the promises that God has made that He has kept because we see the fulfillment in Christ. We've got more reason to pray. We've got richer things to be able to pray than even Daniel. Now, hopefully, you had a chance at Bible study this week to look at some of the prayers, sorry, some of the promises that come up in the last couple of chapters of Daniel. I realize this is a big chunk. It's probably a bit of a misstep to try to do four chapters in one hit of Daniel. If you didn't get a chance to look at it in Bible study, let me give you a, a verse and a promise from the last couple of chapters of Daniel that you can go home and look on. Let me give you a couple of examples. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 21, or better still, write it down. 10, 21. The same thing is present in Daniel 12, verse 1. It's the promise that there is a book of truth already written and established in heaven and that God will save all whose names are written in that book. That is worth reflecting on and praying on, isn't it? It's an amazing promise, an amazing reality. Or what about verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 35? The promise there that God will even use the times of stumbling to refine and purify his people. That's a great comfort if you recognise you recognize yourself as someone who's constantly stumbling. Fumbling with forward momentum is what I want to be. God is able to use even the moments of my stupidity to refine me and purify me, to deepen me in a knowledge and a trust of him. That's a wonderful promise that's worth reflecting on and praying on, isn't it? Or the reality of that final promise that we see in chapter 12, verse 2. The promise that Daniel gets about a general resurrection from the dead to all who have lived, to all who have taken a dirt nap. One day they're going to be resurrected to life. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt and horror. Friends, that is worth reflecting on. That is worth reflecting on personally and worth reflecting on for people that you know. It's worth bringing to God in prayer that both yourself and others that you know and love would be part of the former category rather than the latter category. People who are raised to everlasting life, faith intact, sins forgiven in Christ. I'd love to spend more time looking at the back end of Daniel and looking at more of those promises. There's three out of the last couple of chapters to focus on, to read, to reflect, to pray upon. But right now, what we're going to do is, by finishing our sermon series on Daniel... We're actually going to focus on the object of God's magnificent promise to be merciful, merciful and forgiving in spite of our sinfulness. And we're going to do this as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because, folks, this is the actual ultimate end. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Daniel. It's the reason that, while we, uh, sorry that as Christian people we can wait well with confidence. It's because of Christ.